1: Well, we love talking about new discoveries in space, and there's some new research to tell you all about this morning. It's revealing more, to us anyway, about the surface of Mars, and it's pretty much upending what we thought about how that planet developed. To talk more about that this morning, we're joined by Gord Osinski, who's the director of Western University's Institute for Earth and Space Exploration. Gordon, thank you for being here.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show.
1: Well, tell me about this. What are, you, what are we learning about Mars?
2: Yeah, so one of the the features that we've been investigating are these valley networks. Um, You know, these were first discovered by the Mariner 9 spacecraft in 1972. And really, ever since then, people have thought, because they look like uh, river valleys on Mars, that they formed uh, from rivers, you know, billions of years ago on the surface of Mars. Um, And because of that, you know, that Mars had a warmer and wetter climate uh, earlier in its history. And so, as you said, kind of what we've done in, in this study, and uh, I'd like to give a big shout out to, uh, you know, the lead author, Anna and Mark Jelinek, who's a professor at uh, UBC, because a lot of this research was conducted by uh, the, the two of them at uh, University of the British Columbia in Vancouver, too.
1: Okay, so you did that analysis, comparing it to what we thought looked like Mars, I'm trying to assume what Mars might have been like, but what did we learn?
2: Yes you know it's it's really easy, and you know everybody falls into that trap. You look at two images together uh, of a you know a feature that looks similar, and it's easy to say you know that uh, well because this this feature on Mars looks like a river network on Mars, then therefore you know it must have uh-huh. formed the same way um, but that's a very you know qualitative qualitative approach um, and what we did here um, is to really quantify this. We looked at a series of metrics. Um, to really you know, quantify the differences between uh, river networks, um, the subglacial channels that we've been working on up in the Canadian Arctic, actual glaciers and things called sapping valleys. So there's a bunch of different ways you can form a valley. And so what we did was look at these four main processes, uh, look at the, uh, the metrics uh, between the four of them, And then using the statistical approach that really Anna pioneered uh, called principal component analysis, this enables you to kind of bring out the patterns and the variations and essentially get kind of groups, um, groups of these valleys. And a whole bunch of the groups of the valleys based on, you know, a series of these metrics uh, fold into this subglacial category. And so what we mean by subglacial is that these are actually valleys that are forming beneath glaciers or beneath ice sheets. And so a lot of this is born uh, from our work up on Devon Island in the Canadian high Arctic, where we get these amazing finger-like valley networks that we think are much more analogous to these valley networks on Mars than, you know, a river that's flowing through Vancouver today.
1: Right. So it's amazing to me that you can do all this just from some pictures on Mars.
2: Yeah, pictures and uh, some other information. We used a lot of uh, topographic information that we have for Mars, just like Earth too. So we were able to, you know, really accurately measure not just the length of these channels, but the depth and the slopes of the walls of the channels, too. And those two properties are quite important for this study as well. So, you know, we're only able to do this because we have such amazing data, um, you know, that we've got over the last couple of decades from the surface of Mars. So
1: what does this tell us then? How did those areas those valleys and things form on mars
2: well this is really kind of changing the way we view early mars um of course you know this, we just had another spacecraft perseverance launch for mars last week and its major goal is to actually collect samples and we'll eventually get those back to earth to see if there's evidence for life on the red planet and so you know a lot of our view of early mars will need to change based on our study You know, there is this general view and you hear this term warm, wet, early Mars quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the reason people thought that is because of these, you know, valley networks that we thought were formed from, you know, precipitation and from runoff uh, in a a different climate. So if early Mars, as we're proposing, um, is more, you know, colder and covered in ice sheets and things, it doesn't mean that there wasn't life on Mars. But it's going to have to, we'll have to change our strategy and, you know, our, our entire thinking about what early Mars may have looked like, you know, where life could have arisen, and, uh, and then what that means for, you know, its subsequent four billion year history.
1: What I wonder, though, is that if it changes what we think about early Mars, does that also change anything about how we view life on Earth having us formed or how Earth
2: formed? Uh, it's a great question. Um, you know, actually, ironically, we, we might eventually find out more about Mars because uh, on early Earth, we've lost just about all of the first half a billion year of the rock record um, because Earth is very geologically active, you know, plate tectonics and volcanism and things. But that record is actually preserved on Mars. So in a way, you know, we might be able to figure out a bit more about Mars. Um You know, we know there are, you may have heard of snowball Earth, and there have been periods in Earth's Earth's history where most of the planet, unlike at the last glaciation, was covered in ice sheets. Whether Mars and Earth were the same kind of four billion years ago, we're not quite sure. Um, Earth is closer to the sun, so it would be, you know, overall slightly warmer than Mars, and we have a thicker atmosphere too, so... Yeah, very hard to tell Mm -hmm. whether, uh, you know, Mars and Earth would have been kind of sister planets four billion years ago or not.
1: Well, we'll just have to wait and find out what it is that you discover. Gordon, thank you for your time today. Thanks very much. That's Gordon Osinski, Director of Western University's Institute for Earth and Space Exploration. The research that they are doing in conjunction with a couple of other facilities, including out at UBC, has changed the way these researchers and scientists look at Mars. In fact, has upended the way that they have looked at Mars in the past and how some of the topography of Mars actually developed. It's some fascinating
0: stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. You
1: know, everybody thought that having this lockdown and this pandemic situation would result in some kind of a baby boom, right, nine months from now getting indications go that's not actually going to happen, and also people point to the federal government's aggressive plan to welcome more than three hundred thousand new immigrants to Canada every year. The reason why the federal government does that is they say that we've got this consistently declining birth rate. So is that all still the case? What is happening with our demographics? Well, to talk more about that, we're joined now by Nora Spinks, who's the CEO of the Vanier Institute for the Family. Nora, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. It's always a pleasure. And what is it that you have been looking into? Like, how do we know that the birth rate is still going to be falling?
3: Well, we've been doing week-over-week polling with families, plus a number of other surveys and studies. And our partners at Statistics Canada and universities across the country have also been looking at the impacts of COVID on families, family life. And we've been asking basically three things. What are people doing? What are they thinking and how are they feeling? And we've been sort of compiling the the story of families in Canada. And what we want to do is understand not only what's happening today, but what are the implications of what's happening today going to have long-term on our communities, our families, our society. And we've been working with our partners around the world to see what's similar or different within Canada. So what kinds of... Um, differences in government policies or programs are having on the way in which people are behaving. And there's a couple of things that we've um, noticed here in Canada and are holding true sort of around the world. Um, Before COVID hit, we were seeing a slide in uh, the number of babies being born and the number of children women are having each and so one of the things that we've been able to identify clearly about COVID is that COVID has magnified, amplified and intensified everything in our communities, the strengths, the weaknesses. And if we were going down this particular path anyway, we've sort of accelerated it. So as the fertility rates were dropping, we've seen uh, a dramatic increase in that globally and although we don't have specific numbers in Canada yet, just because of the lag in data collection, we do have in Europe and in several European countries, there's been a drop almost a third of the number of pregnancies during this period. And we, whenever there's a drop or a, a variation of one to two percent, there are profound impacts. So dropping a full third or is massive change. And at the same time, borders are shut and there is none of that immigration to sort of offset the drop in birth rates. So very interesting times to be looking at um, fertility intentions.
1: So down the road, what does that mean for us if, if all of those things stay in place, right? No movement between countries, no immigration, and a lower birth rate. What happens? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, There's always the good and the bad
3: side of of, um, demographic shifts. So what we know is that people tend to have, uh, make decisions about having children, how many to have and when to have them, based on things like stability, stability in their relationships, employment, income, housing, predictability of the future, um, and their confidence in that future. And so whether that's the healthcare system, availability of um, or access to family doctors or um, obstetricians, you know, people are looking forward to what is birthing going to be like in a post-COVID um, world. And they're looking at pre-COVID, their friends' experiences or their own, and then during COVID. And so what we are anticipating is that this trend will continue and that in the next several months, people who are were thinking about um, having children at this point in time or getting pregnant at this point in time are delaying it or deferring it. And some right. of them are just saying, you know what, we've got two, we're not going to go for the third after all. So, or we've got one, we're not going to go for the second after all.
1: So what does that mean for things like childcare in a couple of years or schools for that matter?
3: Yeah, so one of the things about um, looking at Canada through a demographic lens <laughs> and it's one of the most predictable things possible we age one day at a time so if we don't have very many babies in 2021 then there's going to be a third it's, so say we drop a third like the rest of the world then there's going to be a third less kill, children going to kindergarten in 2025 or universities mm-hmm. in 2030 and so it has a profound impact over their life course. And the good news is, um, unlike when there's a baby boom, when there's massive competition and, um, you know, like parents of millennials will remember, um, maybe not so fondly standing in line, trying yes. to get those few spaces to get into swimming lessons. Cause there was such demand, um, if if you do have a child during um, the these COVID months, post COVID, um, those kids aren't going to be standing in line. They're going to have lots of opportunities. They'll have lots of choices for summer jobs. They'll have lots of opportunities, um, and will be able to get into the programs and education and employment that that they're choosing. So when when birth rates go down and there's a small Cohort proportionately, or disproportionately to those before and after them, they tend to have major advantages. So, um, for those, it may be a really good time.
1: That's something for parents to think about. Anora, thank you. Thanks a lot. You have a great day. You too. That's Nora Spank, CEO of the Vanier Institute for the Family. I think that is something for people to think about, right? If if it's going to be a small group there, is that a better time to have kids? Or do you still kind of put it off because of the economic uncertainty? Or do you put it off right now because of what you see happening with the school system?
0: This is Mornings with Simi
1: talk about kids going back to school in September, the release of the provincial government's plan uh, hasn't left everybody feeling 100% confident about this. So to talk more about it, we're joined now by Nikki Redmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simmy. I know back-to-school time
4: is always met with mixed emotions, isn't it? You know, as a kid, sometimes you're eager to go back to school in the fall. Sometimes you're, you're wishing summer would last a little bit longer. And it's kind of the same for parents, too, I think, typically. You know, they, on the one hand, excited to get the kids back into school again. On the other hand, you know, you miss the fun times that you had this summer. This I- September... Full of emotion.
1: Yes, so full of emotion. I was thinking, I was always the kind of parent, you know that TV commercial with the song, the Christmas song, it's the most wonderful time of the year and the dad skipping (laughs) down the aisle buying school supplies. That was you? That was me. That was always (laughs) me. Uh, But you're right, this September is not fun for parents because they're just, they're nervous about what's going on.
4: Yeah, I think that that excitement of let's send them back to school isn't being felt by, no. by nearly everybody or even to the same degree as perhaps we kind of kidded about in the past. A lot of parents hesitant this year, as we know that the province, as you said, has, have released their plan and, and there will be a full return back to school once again. In fact, there was even a petition that went online and yesterday this petition, which is titled Keep Return to School in B.C., on optional or voluntary basis in September 2020. So yesterday, it had about 1,000 signatures yesterday morning. And now, if you check it, it has 9,000 signatures. So this is a petition that has been very quickly growing, which I think reflects, to some degree, that there is a lot of nervousness with parents in returning their kids back to school. They're going, hold on a second here. I at least want uh, the option to keep my kids learning online. I think the other aspect of this is they want those options made very clear to them. And I don't think that they have been made clear yet.
1: No, but they still, they have to wait now because really it's up to the individual school districts and in many cases, the individual schools to see what they are able to provide. And so the plan, I think that was announced last week, and this, I know parents really want all the answers, but they don't all exist yet. The plan was like an overarching plan. Now the individual districts have to figure out how they're going to deliver it and what different forms that's going to take.
4: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, as we go through this pandemic, this is something that we've all had to grapple with, which is plans being made before all the answers are clear. Yes. And it's tough. It's tough to move into the future with a plan that. There's still so many holes in and everyone is just kind of hoping that it turns out to be the right plan. But this is our new normal, isn't it? It's been our new normal since, I guess, March, April. And it's similar to the back to school plan where we don't quite have all the answers yet. It could still change if cases grow in the province and things get a bit worse. They're still going to have to be somewhat flexible with what this plan is. There simply isn't answers yet for parents, but that's left parents, obviously, you know, uncomfortable with it
1: and I don't blame them for being uncomfortable at all with it. But you're right, there is no definitive answer. There isn't a single jurisdiction that has yet pulled this off without having some hiccups or problems. It's true. And you know, I know Dr. Bonnie Henry said, uh, you know, that there is options.
4: She said, we're not saying that every child has to be there. Uh, This is not what the plan is. The plan says that the aim is to support every child in a classroom setting as much as we can. But even that." speak in itself is is fairly vague so she's saying okay you know not every kid has to return back to school but we're hoping that every kid can be supported in in class learning and then you still have parents left going okay well if there are other options then why don't I know what those other options are yet you know I talked to a mom uh, last week on CKNW on the phone and, and she was saying that she has a child who has asthma she said she's not really comfortable returning her kid back to school yet but she doesn't know what the plan is she wanted options made available to her and we've heard that there will be options made available to to kids who might have um, some kind of medical condition who can't return, but she doesn't even know yeah. what's going on yet and she certainly doesn't feel comfortable returning her child back to school.
1: It's so tangled, right? It's just so, yeah. I do not envy Rob Fleming, the education minister or the provincial government or anybody having to deal with this particular issue because You know, Dr. Bonnie Henry keeps saying that she believes very strongly that it's becoming more detrimental to children to keep them out of school and that we have to find a way to send them back, that we're falling behind. The kids are falling behind in terms of where they should be at this age. That's a pretty Uh scary prospect, too. It is. the. I mean, very rarely do I ever, um, am I ever envious of
4: any politician in their job? <laughs> I think yeah, regardless of true. the pandemic, it wouldn't be a job that I would want by any means. I think now is certainly, uh, yeah, again, evidence that I would not want that job. I would not want Rob Fleming's job right now. I think that, uh, you know, on the one hand, it'll be really interesting to see what sort of information comes out of this as we look back. You know, how did kids develop during the pandemic? Were they able to to develop at a level that their peers had developed at? Is it more detrimental after all to keep them home? And, and we're talking about, you know, not just educational development, but social development as well. There's a lot of skills that are being lost right now yeah. during this really vital period as, as these kids grow. So it will be interesting to see ultimately what is more damaging to those children as well as the larger society. You know, is there... Is there delay in their school growth balanced out by the potential threat of them spreading a disease in these cohort groups of 60 to, I believe it's 120 mm-hmm. students, depending on the age range. And, you know, there's some information out there that kids don't spread or transmit the virus the same way. And then there's other studies that come out and say, you know, they can still spread and then transmit the virus to to some degree at the very right. least. So, you know, you're, you're kind of balancing all this information and going, well, what's more detrimental to a society?
1: Exactly. That's the dilemma there. So what should they be doing about schools? If you want to weigh in, you can email me, simmy at cknw.com, or you can call our buzzline 604-331-2899. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. It's our Nikki Reitmeyer there. So yes, let us know, parents out there, how you're feeling. Do you think it should be optional for your kid to go back to school? How should that child then be supported? What would you like to see happen with school in September?
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Seems to me we're all waiting to find out more about a COVID nineteen vaccine. We have talked about it for months. We have been waiting for it. We even talk about the plans about how it will be distributed and who will get it first. But then, what happens at that point? Also, well, that's the results of some polling that have been done on this by the Angus Reid Institute. And for more on that, Executive Director Shachi Curl joins us now. Good morning, Shachi. Good morning, Simi. So what did you ask people about?
5: We wanted a sense of, first of all, would you get the vaccine? Would you be the first in in line for one? Or would you take more of a wait and see approach? Or would you be somebody who really is not keen to be vaccinated? And then further, we wanted to dig into some prevailing attitudes um, about the, the vaccines themselves. So, uh, you know, are you worried about side effects? Do you think vaccines are effective? Do you think that they're actually a way of, of spreading more of the disease? Remember, Simi, even before COVID-19 changed all our lives, there had been a pretty robust debate, if you want to call it, between people who actually right. believe the science around vaccines and those that don't. So, on that first question, you find that uh, Canadians are divided between saying, yes, 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 I want it right away, as soon as it's possible, please stick me with that needle, and those who say... Uh, yes, but I want to wait a little bit longer. That is what you see the majority response as being. Although there is a, you know, a significant number, nearly one in seven who say that, yeah, I'm not going to get the vaccine. Like at all? Like at all. 14% say no, and that actually rises uh, in certain parts of the country. So, in Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba, that number is closer to 20%. It's, uh, it's a the lowest in uh, in bc and you see the highest number of people in the country uh in bc saying yeah no i want to get that vaccine right away
1: interesting so does this break down um politically at all it does and what you find is that
5: while majorities of uh of all uh politically minded politically uh, uh ideologically driven canadians say yes I'm going to get the vaccine. That number is actually a little bit, a lot lower among past conservative voters. So for example, um, people who voted for the conservative party in the last election, uh, the majority say, yes, uh, I will get the vaccine. But the number who say no actually rises to 26%. And you can compare that Hmm. to to, to just three and four percent among those Uh, who voted for the NDP or the Liberal Party in the last election. So what does that say? Much higher levels of resistance among that cohort.
1: But if we look at just the simple yes, like yes now or yes eventually, like soon, that's Mm -hmm. a pretty large number. It was 46 plus 32%.
5: That's right. So that is the vast majority. But you also have another 8% who say, I'm not really sure. So when you look at the number who say no, Plus, I don't know, you're looking at nearly one in five people. So that's a significant segment of Canadians um, who who are kind of hanging back on this. Uh, it's just above uh, overall the number who, who uh, would need to say yes uh, for herd immunity. So if you need uh, 70% of the population to get vaccinated in order to have herd immunity, you've got, just about 76% of Canadians saying, yes, I would do this, sign me up. But then, of course, it's a timing issue, Simi, because Mm -hmm. some are saying yes right away, and some are saying, I'm worried about side effects. I'm worried about what some of the impacts of a vaccine would be. So, yes, but maybe not right away, because maybe they have to tweak it a little bit.
1: Right. Now, interesting also to note the number of people who said life isn't going to go back to normal until people get vaccinated.
5: And that's a big driver um, as to whether you think you're going to get the vaccine. So there's a couple of, of, of key beliefs or statements that really sort of drive that that sense of would I get the vaccine or not um the understanding and the belief that hey our lives aren't going to go back to normal unless we all get the vaccine is a big driver for people who want to get the vaccine at the same time you have a number of people who say look I'm not really worried about getting sick myself but I would want to do it to protect my family members I would want to do it because my doctor told me to do it um People who believe uh, and and have great conviction around wanting to protect their family members, people who are inclined to take medical advice,
6: those
1: are the people
5: who who are most inclined to say, yes, I want to get the vaccine.
1: All right, Shachi, thanks very much for breaking it down for us.
0: Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, as we just heard in the news, it's nothing but bad news, it seems like, from Strathcona Park lately. There are more than 300 tents there now, housing a lot of the people who had been evicted from Oppenheimer Park a couple of months ago. But advocates say the park's residents are left without any alternative. They say the park has become a last resort for people who have fallen through so many cracks. We wanted to talk more about that, about what is it going to take here? Well, Fiona York would know. She's a coordinator with the Carnegie Community Action Project and a tenant support worker with the Lookout Emergency Aid Society. She has been advocating for homeless residents of the city for years now. Fiona, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Fiona, is there something different about what's going on in Strathcona Park right now? Has something changed when it comes to homelessness?
7: Well, first, I just want to correct that um, when you say that many people came from Oppenheimer Park, there, yes, there are a few people that were in Oppenheimer Park and were in Crab Park and are now in Strathcona Park that slipped through the cracks in housing and are still waiting for housing. Um, But what we see is uh, just a a large growth in numbers, and it's because there are so many people who are homeless, and a lot of that um, actually relates to uh, the COVID pandemic, where more people became displaced than ever, and um, we're seeing more people on the street, unable to access uh, shelter during the day or shelter at night. People are displaced due to guest policies and lack of access to shelters. So the numbers have grown, and um, we're just seeing people who are have no access to shelter. Um, currently, mm-hmm. there's no legal place where people can be during the day. There's no uh, federal, provincial, municipal. Space where people can actually be um, safely during the day and not just based on a continual basis. So we're seeing people that are accessing um, a space that does allow them to just uh, be in one place, be safe, uh, at least for uh, some period of time, and this is uh, an Indigenous-led encampment where uh, there are measures, there are outreach workers, there are um, some resources in place where people can um, access uh, some level of resources and safety for a short period of time.
1: So it sounds like what you're saying then is that the, the homelessness has increased, but the rules haven't changed around how people can use the services that we have to help the homeless.
7: Exactly. So there's still no housing. We have more homelessness, and we still have no housing. And there's no place where people can be. So there's been no effort, for example, um, when when uh, people were at Crab Park, uh, one of the things that was advocated was for um, the city to get involved and perhaps to lease that space. So that was a, a sort of an innovative idea where people were in a space that was inappropriate uh, in so many ways, uh, was not on in a residential area, was not in a park. Um, and the uh, city, for example, could have leased that space from the port to allow people to stay there um, in a a fairly appropriate place when there is just the complete absence of housing or anywhere else where people can be. Of course, the solution is to have that housing, uh, but we know that's not going to happen overnight.
1: So how do we move forward then on this? Because, I mean, it is getting a lot of attention right now, and it feels like if the province pays attention, we should have something ready.
7: Um, Absolutely. I think that we need to um, continually uh, press on the province for and lobby and advocate for that housing um, by seeing so many people in one place and knowing that there's 300 people that are uh, finding shelter in this one place. I think that um, provides the visibility and the urgency and the pressure on the provincial government and the federal government as well for solutions. Um, But in the interim, uh, we know that we need to... um, to look at what, what is happening right now. And so I'd say um, on different levels, so the immediate solution, um, things like conflict resolution, working with the community, we try uh, to keep up lines of communication and dialogue with uh, the community. We meet every week with the South Carolina Residents Association, Community Policing Association. Um, then on the sort of bigger picture, looking at a space that is uh, a place where people can be temporarily, but is trauma informed, it's culturally safe. Indigenous-led, peer-run, community-supported, but has resources as well um, that people can be in the interim, uh, whatever that looks like. Uh, one suggestion recently has been to pilot the idea of an urban reserve. Um, so, for example, with the Congress of Aboriginal People North Northwest Indigenous Council talking about uh, something that has never happened in BC before, but um, the idea of the urban reserve or um, because we know that uh, such a disproportionate number of homeless people are Are indigenous. And then looking, of course, at the much bigger picture, um, getting away from the really punitive levels of uh, social assistance that people receive, um, the lack of housing that has been going on for numerous years uh, on the federal level, a provincial level as well. Um, and decriminalization. So all of those things are sort of the bigger picture here.
1: Now, I know we've, we've talked to the finance minister, Carol James, about this, and she points to these coordination centers that the province is setting up. Uh, one of them hopefully will be in that area where they will help people get services and coordinate their connection kind of to the system. Do you think that will help?
7: I think that's a lot of money going into something that is a short-term solution. So you're, I believe you're talking about the navigation centers, right. which is kind of like an enhanced shelter system. So it actually sounds like um, basically just enhancing something that's a temporary solution. And wouldn't that, those funds, I think it's $50 million, be better invested in something, even if it was temporary modular housing or some other kind of housing, rather than just kind of repeating what's already being done um, and doing it on, uh, rather than doing that on the community level, doing it on a much larger level with these very large-scale, shelter systems, which seems like something that's done in the states or elsewhere, um, has not been done here before and um, I think that was passed in the budget last year and hasn't been moved on yet. So I would say take that $50 million and invest it into permanent housing um, and then take into account all of these uh, things that we're, we're discussing. So the idea of the, the urban reserve, um, Indigenous-led community consultation, uh, looking at um, talking to people who are actually impacted by this. I'm not sure that people who are homeless would actually be calling for a navigation centre. I think most people are calling for housing and housing Mm -hmm. that's appropriate to them and, and their needs. Does everyone
1: want permanent housing, though? We hear that sometimes as well, is that not everybody wants what is being offered.
7: Um, I think that it's because what is being offered is not being appropriate. So, for example, I spoke with a couple the other day in the park who said that um, they they are homeless right now because they simply cannot afford housing where their kids can be. And their kids are in foster care. They're desperate to have their kids back. And the housing they were offered um, through the, uh, the outreach or the, uh, the access to services that they had was a really inappropriate SRO where they could not even see their kids, let alone have their kids come and stay with them. So, people are looking for housing that is appropriate to their circumstances. For some people, it might be modular housing, it might be an SRO, but for so many others, it might be sober housing or housing where they can access services. For a lot of people, um, they want to have access to their kids, even if it's just visiting. So that means it has to be really appropriate housing and and people don't want to just go into um, another SRO or or supportive housing or a situation where they can't they can't access their kids or see their kids or have their pets. Mm-hmm. So, there we have people, a lot of uh, quite a few people with kids and with pets who are staying in the park because they cannot bring them into housing. So, then, Fiona,
1: what are the next steps here?
7: What needs to happen? Um, so, continuing to, um, we, we always encourage people who are concerned to lobby and advocate uh, for that provincial and the federal funding for housing. Um, looking at things that are a little bit more innovative. Uh, so, again, the um, culturally safe, trauma-informed, Indigenous-led, um, working with peers, community-supported, um, and then resources from the government. But it really needs to come from, uh, from people who are affected. Um, so rather than setting up something like a, a temporary uh, camp that's uh, you know, very top-down managed, Um, looking at uh, involving people who are affected by the situation. And then again, um, just looking at, uh, on the bigger picture, uh, what are some ways that we can alleviate uh, some of the vulnerabilities for people? And that might be around decriminalization, housing, of course, and uh, income assistance levels.
1: Well, Fiona, thank you very much for your time on this. Thank you very much. As Fiona. You're a coordinator with the Carnegie Community Action Project and a tenant support worker with the Lookout Emergency Aid Society. She, of course, has been advocating for homeless residents of the city for years now. And looking at what's happening in Strathcona Park, she says essentially what we're doing is not working. And there needs to be a much bigger, a much more coordinated approach to that.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Let's talk about the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion. Boy, it feels like a long time since we have talked about that, haven't we? Well, it's actually being called into question right now because, get this, we went an entire month where no oil tankers actually filled up at that particular terminal in Burnaby. So there were 19 vessels that filled up on crude oil at the terminal in the first six months of the year. But a professor at Simon Fraser University would like the federal government to reassess this project in light of the unused capacity that is going on there right now. Tom Gutton joins us now, head of the Resource and Environmental Planning Program at Simon Fraser University. Tom, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Tell me about these numbers.
8: Well, um, people have always been concerned about the environmental impacts of Trans Mountain, the climate change impacts, and the high risk of a tanker spill. And these were always justified on the grounds that there were economic benefits the project by the federal government justifying them and now there have been three significant changes that have occurred since the federal government approved the project which really undermine and call into question the economic viability number one the cost of the project has more than doubled from its original estimate of 5.4 billion up to now 12.6 billion and the way the toll systems worked uh, for shippers on the project the taxpayer who now owns the project is going to end up covering a large proportion of that cost overrun. So we will be subsidizing uh, oil companies shipping on the pipeline. The second thing that's happened, and I think everyone is aware of this, the demand for oil has really collapsed. Uh, And in fact, it's the highest drop in oil demand ever recorded uh, by the International Energy Association. And so companies are cutting back on uh, productions, um, on, on planned investment. Uh and therefore the need for uh new pipelines has dropped significantly and the IEA International Energy Agency actually forecasts that we are going to be reaching peak oil demand very soon and, and in fact uh, demand is going to decline by some thirty percent to meet our climate change targets over the next number of years. And the third thing is that we've had other pipelines uh have come have, have been proposed and are under construction by companies such as Enbridge and, and TransCanada, which are lower cost uh, than the Trans Mountain pipeline, and will meet all of Alberta's needs uh, for the next uh, 20 years without having to build Trans Mountain. So, when you add all of these three things together, what it mm-hmm. means is that the economic viability of Trans Mountain has certainly uh, been undermined significantly. So, the question we're asking is, hey. Why should the taxpayer be subsidizing an environmentally high risk and now an economically high risk pipeline, Trans Mountain, when the private sector is building other pipelines that are lower risk without any public subsidy?
1: How do we know it's going to stay like this? Like, just to play devil's advocate here for a moment, Tom, like nobody saw the drop in oil demand coming because of the pandemic. How do we know, you know, a year from now, two years from now, it's not just going to rebound?
8: Well, there certainly will be some recovery in in oil demand. But when you look at all the forecasts now, what the companies are saying in the private sector is is cutting back on its investments. So one of the largest companies, Total Petroleum, a French company, just wrote off almost $10 billion of its oil sands assets uh, because they were no longer economically viable. Tech uh, shelved their... uh, Frontier uh, mine, which they had planned, oil oil mine. And so the private sector is cutting back. The forecasters are telling us that oil demand is going to be weaker. But even, Simi, if you take the most optimistic forecast by the, by the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, um, they forecast at the most a growth of 1 million in, in oil production in Canada, 1 million barrels per day over the next uh, 10 years. And we currently are planning on building two and a half million barrels uh, of extra pipeline capacity. So that's two and a half times uh, more pipeline capacity than we require. So there's simply going to be a lot of empty pipelines. And so why should the taxpayer be building a pipeline that's not really needed when the private sector is willing to step in and uh, meet the demand?
1: I guess realistically, Tom, the question to ask is, is it even possible at this point to stop it?
8: Well, you know, and that's a very good question, Simi, um, and the answer is yes, it is, um, because they are still just in the early stages of commencing construction. So what we're saying is, look, you're going to be spending $12.6 billion in addition to the four billion you've already spent uh, to buy the pipeline, and it's probably going to turn out to be higher uh, because these projects have a history of overruns. And so this is one of the largest single investments, and you're still in the early stages of it uh, that's ever been undertaken by the federal government. And so let's have a comprehensive evaluation of the feasibility of making this investment before we do it. And uh, the federal government is currently relying on information that's almost five years old for its economic evaluation by the National Energy Board. And the, and the market has changed. The conditions have changed. The costs have changed. And so let's do like we did with Site C. Let's just take a breath. And before we spend all of this taxpayer money, let's see if it makes sense. And if, in fact, it makes more sense to spend that $12.6 billion on other projects Uh, such as green energy or, or environmental cleanup or even housing or allocate it to other areas where it may be more productively used.
1: Like to look at this politically, though, as well, Tom, like you look at where the federal government is at right now and all the things that they have on their plate. Is this a time, do you think, realistically, where they're going to make such a huge and major policy shift like that?
8: Well, again, that's a, that's a good question. But, you know, if you're spending me, $12.6 billion of the taxpayer money, taxpayer's money, you have an obligation to do a due diligence evaluation of that expenditure. And if there are better ways of spending it, um, it's always good from a public policy point of view to look at those alternatives, uh, which will benefit the economy more, because we simply, there's not, no longer enough demand uh, production of oil to justify this pipeline. There are other pipelines that are being built that are no taxpayer subsidies involved to meet all of the needs. And so it's a t- it's really time to uh, to to sit back like we did with Site C and let's take a look at the evidence because if things have changed, and say, hey, does this m- still make sense? Uh, and if it doesn't, uh, let's re out before we before we spend that twelve point six billion uh let's do let's do that analysis, and if it makes sense to spend it someplace else on other higher priorities uh that's what we should do.
1: So do you think if it stays like this over the next few months, perhaps till the end of the year, will that cause the government to take another look?
8: Well, I hope so because uh, the the circumstances have changed so significantly uh, that the federal government has got to be questioning whether to whether this continues to make sense to proceed. Um, so we we would hope that would happen. I mean, this is the largest drop in oil demand ever. The private sector is slashing their capital budgets. So while the private sector is slashing their investment in oil, uh why should the federal government uh, sit there, be increasing their investment in oil. It simply does not make a lot of sense. They're going exactly the wrong way. So, yet it is hard for people to uh, reflect, make changes to uh, major decisions like this. But you, we still have time. And from the taxpayers' point of view, and from the environment point of view, uh, we, we should really look at whether we want to spend this 12.6 billion mm-hmm. building a pipeline we no longer need.
1: Tom, thanks so much for your time on this.
8: Okay, thanks to me.
1: That's Tom Gutton, head of the Resource and Environmental Planning Program at Simon Fraser University. They took a look at some of the stats, uh, the number of oil tankers filling up at the terminal in Burnaby, where they're building the twinning of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. 19 vessels filled up on crude oil at the terminal in the first six months of the year, but they actually had a month in June where nothing filled up at that terminal. And so his argument is... Maybe we don't need this twinning anymore. Maybe we should be putting a
0: halt to this project. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: You know, COVID-19 has upended a lot of things in 2020, including the different political leadership races that have been going on across the country. B.C. Green Party still, you know, waiting for their leadership convention, federal Greens doing this, and of course, the Federal Conservative Party. In just a few weeks, we will find out who will replace Andrew Scheer, but that is months after initially this thing was supposed to be ended back in June. Now we know August 21st is the deadline for ballot. The results are expected shortly after. So we wanted to talk about how this race is going. Jenny Byrne joins us now, founder of Jenny Byrne & Associates, a consulting group and former campaign manager for Stephen Harper. Thank you very much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me on. This does feel like the race that never ends.
6: Oh, tell me about it. I, uh, everyone I have spoken to is uh, counting down the days. I, I've been told that Sunday, April 23rd, or uh, August 23rd, is going to be the day that we finally found out what the find out who, uh, who the new leader is.
1: What do you think changed, Jenny, as a result of having the leadership contest kind of extended because of COVID-19? Did it influence kind of who people's favorite was? Did it change the momentum at all?
6: I think it did a bit. I think that there is a lot of people looking at uh, uh, Leslyn Lewis. She's kind of been, she's she has come out of this leadership race. Uh, if anyone has benefited from the extra time, it's the party looking at her and 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 seeing her as a viable uh, viable alternative i don't think she can win but i think she has run a great campaign i think she is extremely smart and i really hope that regardless of what happens she ends up playing a very big and vital role within our uh within our party
1: that is a name that i've suddenly started hearing a lot more about as well what happened what made her become better known
6: well, I think that well, one, I don't want to take anything away from her. She's an extremely smart, capable uh, woman. Um, but I think that a lot of conservative members just did not. See, a lot of conservative members are looking at the two perceived front runners, Peter McKay and Erin O'Toole, and they're just they're wishing that there was uh, there was more uh, there was more out there. And I think that she's being looked as an alternative to the perceived front runners,
1: a fresh face essentially.
6: Yes. Yeah, exactly.
1: Okay, let's talk about those two front runners. Then it seemed like from the very beginning Peter McKay was the front runner, was the leader in this, the favorite to win it. Is that still the case?
6: I would say so. I think he is actually he still remains the uh the front runner. He had a few missteps off the off the bat in terms of social media and communications, but that's kind of it's it's that's gone away. And right now, basically the campaign should be focused on nothing but getting out the vote and if you see, uh, and, I, and I look at social media, um, uh, like uh, other members and other Canadians, and Peter McKay is out door-knocking. He's door-knocking in Quebec and Ontario and elsewhere uh, to, uh, to get the vote out. And that's ultimately what's going to win uh, leadership elections. Has he had
1: to change his message at all? Because there's a big difference, and I think any political party finds this, right? There's a difference between running for leadership and then running more broadly in an election.
6: 100 uh, percent. You 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 refine your messages uh, based on a general basis uh, or a leadership race. I don't think he has. I think the there's very little difference. Take outside of Derek Sloan, who who's going to come in fourth place. There's very little difference really between the uh, between the campaigns in terms of what their uh, what their messaging is. And so I think that he hasn't changed his messaging. I think that the McKay campaign has base, has decided to. They're focusing on more of a one-on-one ground game, so to speak, and so we'll see if that uh, that works out for them.
1: Now, it seemed like a couple months ago that Aaron O'Toole was kind of gaining ground. Do you think that worked for him? Is this race close?
6: Well, listen, I'm not sure. If you, I, I have friends in uh, in uh, uh, three of the four campaigns, and uh, they will say that uh, depending on who you're speaking to, they will say that uh, that it is close. I guess we'll see. Uh, ballots are being mailed in now. And uh, the counting has already started. Uh, and so we'll see how close it actually is mm-hmm. um, in terms of uh, in terms of going. But I, as I said, I still think that McKay remains uh, the front runner, uh, the front runner in this, this race. And Leslie Lewis is, I think, going to do very, very well, much better than if we were having this conversation in uh, February or March of last year.
1: So what does this leader, new leader, have to do then, Jenny? Like what what do they have to turn their attention to right away?
6: Well, right away, it's the, uh, it's what the conservatives have been focusing on now, mostly led by Pierre Polyev in the House or in, in the Finance Committee, the Zoom, the Virtual Finance Committee, is it turned the attention on the Liberals. And there's so many things to actually that, that need questioning. And so you've got this wee scandal where the Liberals were going to give close to a billion dollars, uh, a billion dollar program for their mm-hmm. friends. And, and, and their family who were was getting financial benefits from, from we, from the Kielbergers, uh, that is one question. But also, uh, the focus is going to be on the economy. And so the government has propped up the Canadian economy essentially for the last four to five months based on COVID. And I'm not even disagreeing that it wasn't necessary at the time. But the fact of the matter is, is the federal government pays for it, but ultimately it's Canadian taxpayers. And so I think as the financial ramifications of COVID in the last, four or five months become more understood. Uh, the Conservatives are going to need to hold this Liberal government account to the decisions that they made So, has, leading into that. has
1: that been a bit of a missed opportunity, do you think, the fact that there have been these chances to go after the Liberal government and the Conservatives are still kind of waiting to see who that next leader is?
6: Well, I think it's challenging when you don't essentially have a, a permanent leader. I I think that you have seen conservatives like, as I said, Pierre Polyev, who have been doing a lot of the heavy lifting and, and have been doing a very good job at it. But the issue with not having a permanent leader is you just don't have the traction that you would have if if you had one. And so right. the fact that we're two months behind, you know, it was going to be the last weekend in June that we elected a, a leader, and now we're it's it's going to be in August. It's it's somewhat uh, it's somewhat set us back in terms of uh, in terms of that. As, as a, as a conservative, I say that. But I think there's still plenty of time. And I think whoever gets elected, be it uh, Aaron or Peter or Leslin, uh, they're going to, uh, they're going to, uh, uh, you know, in three weeks, be right out of the gates going after uh, the Liberals in terms of accountability.
1: Oh, we'll see what happens. Thanks so much for your time on this. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. You too. That's Jenny Byrne, founder of Jenny Byrne and Associates Consulting Group. She's the former campaign manager for Stephen Harper as well, talking about that conservative leadership race, which is wrapping up in the next few weeks.